Welcome to Unveiling Apocalypse, a podcast about the book of Revelation. Well, welcome everyone. Um, my special guest today is Dr. Chris Thomas, um, who has a very long CV, which is probably a little too long to go into detail with here, as it'll take up most of our podcast. But Chris, you know, it's an absolute delight to have you with us today. Could you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Well, thanks, uh, Ewan. I'm, I am uh, honored to be with you today, uh, or tonight here and today there. Uh, I teach at the Pentecostal Theological Seminary. Uh, I have a chair there, um, the Abbott Chair of Biblical Studies, and I'm the director of the Center for Pentecostal and Charismatic Studies at Bangor University in Wales, uh, where I mainly supervise PhD students uh, for them most of whom are located in North America. Uh, I'm a part-time associate pastor uh, of uh, the Woodward Church of God in Athens, Tennessee, and um, have written some on the apocalypse and uh, find it um, in some ways perhaps uh, the most important of the biblical texts. Okay, so, so let's talk a little bit about that then. Um, just that little phrase you've said there, that it, it's perhaps the most important of the biblical texts, or one of the most important. Um, can you talk a little bit to that? Well, you know, with, with uh, folk who, are, who study the Bible for a living, sometimes whatever book they're looking at is the most important book at that particular time, right? Uh, and I came to the apocalypse really late, in my kind of academic journey, done a lot of work in the Johannine literature, the fourth gospel, uh, the epistles, so-called epistles, first, second, third John, and um, came, came, as I say, kind of late apocalypse. I was, uh, so I didn't know a whole lot about it other than kind of our popular tradition, popular preaching and teaching. And when I began to look at the text, I was kind of, um, wowed by its literary structure, by the intricacy, intricacy of, the, of the book. It's the way in which the Old Testament seems to form a substrata. Folks say that it's never quoted directly, and yet wherever you put you know, your knife in, uh, the text seems to bleed the Old Testament. It has a major theme on faithful witness, and it has a major voice, New Testament voice, on the role of the Spirit, both of which I think in some ways offer a vision of what a pneumatic faithful witness is that is very hard to capture in a triumphalistic way. Sometimes people have captured acts that way, but it's very hard to do that with the apocalypse. And of course, the beauty of the imagery is just really uh, powerful and to me, really overwhelming at times. So I would say when I was working on the apocalypse primarily and writing the commentaries, it was the most exhilarating and exhausting experience of my academic life. So you um, clearly have written a couple of commentaries then on the book of Revelation, uh, the apocalypse. And, and so talking about exhausting, what, what makes the text exhausting, do you think? 
Well, I think it's so, you know, some, I think I start out my commentaries by saying that Revelation is the most sensual book in the Bible because it draws on all of the senses. There are things seen and heard and smelled and tasted. There are things that are touched. And so it's a very powerful, to me, affective kind of experience. There's this movie called The Mission, which talks about a Roman Catholic mission to South America back in the day. And there's this wonderful scene where Jerry, Jeremy Irons' character is climbing up the face of a waterfall. And I, when I was watching it, I had piped it through my stereo system. And when the scene was over, I was just kind of wiping the water off of myself because it was so, it drew me in so much. And, and I find that the text of the apocalypse does that. And so in some ways, I think approaches to the apocalypse that are wholly cerebral or rational are in some ways very limited and limiting kinds of engagements. And so if you are captured by the text, and if you give yourself to the text, it seems to me that the way it's drawing on all your senses leads to that kind of physical exhaustion. And so, you know, one of the things I always did after I'd read all the commentaries I was going to read and the journal articles, et cetera, is I would always look at the artwork last to see the ways in which things were being communicated visually that oftentimes commentators couldn't pick up on because the imagery can be bizarre at times and they can capture things and put things together that don't seem to go together if you are trying to to comment on it. I think it may be one of the reasons why it's the only book Calvin didn't write a commentary on. And that, that's an interesting point then, that, you know, Revelation draws on all our senses and, and it's immersive, I suppose, if you like. The, the issue then, I think, is that with traditional biblical scholarship, and you touched on this with Calvin a little, traditional biblical scholarship is very much, to an extent, divorced from that, in, in that, you know, we, we deal primarily with words on page, you know, and it's a little dry and, you know, we, we sort of try and dissect the text. So what, what then do you have to say about how scholarship can or perhaps should engage the text then? Well, I, you know, I wouldn't presume to speak for all scholars, um, though I would love to, but I don't <laughs> presume to do that. You know, I, I was, um, I kind of cut my teeth in the heyday of uh, historical criticism. And I remember when I was during, it was during my THM program at, at Princeton Seminary, where I worked primarily with um, Bruce Metzger. I was reading, uh, just on my own, uh, Voltmann's Jesus Christ in Mythology. And he says in the book, everybody has presuppositions and bring them to the text. The only difference between me and you is you will act like you don't have any, and I will tell you what mine are. And of course, that was back in the days when people were convinced of a, an objectivity which always proved elusive. And, uh, the, but the objectivity, it seemed to me, 
was normally uh, did not normally include the stories of the interpreters. It was almost as though they were afraid. It was as though you could start everything, you know, as, as on a blank sheet of paper. And, and eventually I discovered that that really wasn't the way things worked and that often hidden presuppositions determined what people found in texts and determined which methods they choose to employ and not. And of course, as I was coming along, historical criticism was really the pretty much the only game in town. And so I think what's happened over the last few decades has been, and especially with the rise of postmodernity, people have seen what readers bring to texts. And sometimes that can be as simple as when women found a place in the academy and began to read texts. They found much more about women than their male counterparts. Or when Pentecostals and Charismatics started to read the text, they found that there was much more there about the role of the spirit and spiritual gifts and prophecy and such than their, their counterparts. I mean, you just look at the difference in the scholarship, in the commentaries alone, that tells us our location means a lot. I grew up in a tradition that took the words of Jesus in John 13 very seriously, that we were commanded by Jesus to wash one another's feet. But what I found as, as I was writing my, my PhD thesis on that topic, that very few scholars even asked the question, could Jesus have meant this literally? And these were the, these were the leading scholars. I'm not talking about, you know, folk off on, in the bushes somewhere. I'm talking about Raymond Brown and Schnockenberg and, and kind of the leading folk. And so my location made, put me in a position to ask the question that they seemed to be missing. And after I did a literary analysis, I then began to ask the question, how did the first readers and the real readers in the early church take these commands. And just about to a person, those who knew the fourth gospel's tradition took the commands literally. So does that say that my location allowed me to read into the text or did my location bring some insight that the location of other interpreters had, had missed? So it's along those lines that uh, I think I think that that kind of explains, in part, why so many people approach the apocalypse in a real detached fashion. Of course, the other side of it is we've seen example after example of kind of disastrous readings of the apocalypse, where there doesn't seem to be near enough close, careful, sober reading of the text. Uh, in an integrated kind of fashion. So I think, you know, there's a lot of things that account for that, but I think part of it is where the guild was, and I think part of it is the kind of divide that your podcast is is seeking to speak to. And that's precisely what I was going to kind of ask you next, which is, you know, for, for the average person on the street, if you like, you'll come along to the text and you'll see two very different readings of it. To paint in broad brushstrokes here, you've got some of the more lurid um, interpretations, which you know often tend to 
take the text very literalistically and you know try to pinpoint dates or, or precise events and then you've got the academy which tends to be very as we've kind of spoken about you know very set in particular ways well at least you know it has been it's beginning to change as you say so how then can the average person begin to navigate this because you know it, it seems that you're caught between a rock and a hard place which is why i think many people just give up on the text yeah yeah and in certain parts of our tradition the issue of eschatology has become very contentious. And so, you know, I recall before I got to the apocalypse thinking, well, I'm not going to really do much with it till I get near retirement. So whatever I come up with, at least my career will be over. And, and some might have thought I hastened it with that. But I think that what I have found, Ewan, is that both in, at the, in the local parish and in the classroom, is that when you begin to actually look at the text, and it's one of the, the str- real strengths of literary analysis, I think, and narrative analysis, is if you set the parameters, we're only talking about this text unless it's pointing us in other directions, then everybody can have a seat around the table. And it doesn't take long before they realize that something's missing, right? So if you, if you cut your teeth, as I did, and others certainly have, on the kind of dispensational grid that gets laid over the top of the text, then you're expecting a certain script to emerge from the text. But if you're following the text along and allow, allowing it to develop in its own ways and means, what you discover is there's a whole different story there. And in my class don't say much about dispensationalism. And later in the semester, I'll inevitably get a question, well, well wait a second, where, where was the rapture? Where was the tribulation? Where was this or that? And, and where's the, the counterfeit church? And where is, you know, and so you get, you get caught up in the, the way the text tells the story and forms you. I think the greatest, to me, example of this, Ewan, which, which I know you can identify with, is there's this remarkable pneumatology in the apocalypse. And there are these four in-the-spirit phrases around which it seems you can, can structure the book. Pentecostals, many Pentecostals, because of their preoccupation with the dispensational script, have had the powerful pneumatology of the apocalypse stolen from them. Now, what a great irony that, that we have lost the power of that particular story because we've let something outside the text sort of set our interpretive agenda. And so I've preached through the apocalypse a number of times at my local church. If I'm invited to speak at state meetings, I'll sometimes look at various dimensions of the apocalypse, and I'll sometimes say to the ministers, you know, one part of my goal is for you to preach from the apocalypse. Now, I know you're thinking, well, what if I'm wrong, right? And I would say, is that the only thing you've ever been wrong about that you preached? You know, you don't have to be an expert to engage with the text, though we have, you know, we have done our best at times to kind of create that aura that this person with their, you know, 30-foot chart or what have you has the key to it, but often they're not actually talking about the text. They're talking about the script. So I think putting the text back in people's hands is one of the ways to do that. 
And there's this great little commentary by Craig Kester called Revelation and the End of All Things. Uh, He's written a much larger commentary, but that little commentary, it seems to me, is a very helpful piece to help folk kind of reclaim the text for themselves. No, that's really helpful, Chris. And I'm curious about, obviously you come from a, um, well, I I don't want to presume this, but you do come from a Pentecostal setting and background. And you mentioned the idea of the pneumatology of the book of Revelation as perhaps, I think, one interpretive approach or an interpretive guide rather than, as you say, you know, being swayed by charts or, or, you know, letting our preconceptions sort of overtake us there. So what do you think a pneumatic approach to the text could look like? Well, it, it seems to me that, that John is in the spirit when he experiences these visions. And what mo- most commentators tend to do is to act like he's writing a research paper and either say that this uh, being in the spirit is either a literary device, right, that he's assuming. But it seems to me that what happens to John in the apocalypse is it's a very kind of intertextual experience where that in the spirit, all that he is, his knowledge of the Johannine Jesus tradition, his knowledge of the Hebrew Bible, his knowledge of the spirit and the church, all converge as he experiences this. I mean, scholars have been split. On the one hand, the structure is so intricate, it looks like it's taken years and years to pull this off. And on the other hand, it is ostensibly a visionary experience that John has. It seems to me that that's the way all that comes together. And so should we not in some ways at least seek to experience the text in the spirit at the same time? And so there are a number of places, as you well know, throughout the text where the spirit is present where the Spirit helps readers to discern the meaning of the text. You get various clues, and hence, often they come by means of the Spirit. There are certain occasions when the Spirit will speak. So it's a very, to me, it's a very dynamic kind of experience with the text. And so, I, you know, I think that the, the narrative itself is what privileges the Spirit. Right. And so it's not as though that's the only dimension of the text that's worth following out, but it, it, it's a major dimension that lots of people have missed. So, you know, I, I think that the text itself kind of encourages us how to, to discern in the spirit and how to experience the text in the spirit. I guess the um, concern there or or the problem there is that if you are approaching it with those preconceived ideas that we've been talking about, it can be very difficult to step away from that and step into the realm of the spirit, as it were, and to allow the text to speak. So do you have any suggestions or strategies as to how someone can do that? I think you have to be willing in the first instance to treat the text as if that is all that exists and that's all that we know. And if we do that, I think we began to be formed by the text, because it is the text itself that leads us in this kind of pneumatic journey, right? And so I think I just pay attention to the cues that the text is giving me. And it's interesting to me, you know, there's this old saying that it's, it's interesting how much light the text throws on the commentaries, 
right? Uh, because we tend to think of it the other way around. But it's interesting to me how often the constructions of scholars are clearly just constructions because the text itself doesn't bear that out. And so I think prior, you know, giving priority to the text, which ostensibly everybody says, but it's the world of the text that I look to to keep me on track. And as I experience things in the text, periodically I'll look back. I've described it to students and others as it's like the the book of Revelation is a kaleidoscope that you can actually enter into the kaleidoscope. And periodically when you look back, things that looked one way when you came through them began to look different because you've experienced more of the text. You've gained a greater clarity in terms of how the text is constructing you, in a sense, as a reader. And I think if you take the pneumatic claims of the text seriously, then you have to be open to experiencing the Spirit along the journey. So the the issue then is what what you're saying is essentially you you isolate yourself alongside the text and read it by in and of itself. And that obviously can clash with the scholarly approach where we tend to, you know, hone in on particular verses, particular little pericopes, if you like, and treat those in isolation. So I suppose what you're suggesting then is a more holistic reading, if you like, where we sit with the entirety of the text. Would that be more or less what you're saying? Oh, yeah. And, and I think, yeah, I, you know, I was trained not just to look at one branch on the tree, but to look at one twig, right? It was very myopic. And most of the time, we didn't have any idea we were standing in the middle of a great forest. Well, there's nothing wrong with looking at a, a leaf, but if the forest provides the context for the leaf, maybe there's a problem. And I think that as a Pentecostal, of course, I read texts in community, and I would say there are at least three different communities in which I read texts. One would be the Pentecostal community, the worshiping community. The other, uh, and an extension of that, would be to hear the, the voices of early Pentecostals who receive these texts in certain ways. That doesn't fossilize either the contemporary context or community or the ancient one, but one has to discern one's way through testimonies. So for Pentecostals, part of our tradition has been, at any rate, times when people would give words of testimony in the service. And I remember as a young boy hearing some things, and I would think, well, that's nuts, right? But I wouldn't say that because I didn't want to be disrespectful. But then I'd hear some adults saying after service, did you hear what he said? That was crazy. Well, it told me that I was on my way to discernment, though I couldn't have described it that way at the time right? So I've got those communities, and I also have the scholarly community that I'm, you know, as as you're doing a work of this magnitude, you find that as you're pulling different commentators off the shelf, it's like you've made new friends, and there are some friends that you really like and you look forward to, and then there are others that you're like, oh my goodness, I've got to work through this, but it's, it's really a drudgery. And so, I don't think it's, it's necessarily just, you know, Jesus and me, because there are lots of scholars who can be very attentive to the text. But uh, I do think for me that given my communal locations, 
I do my best to allow the text and its contours to determine how I see the text and experience the text. And so, so yeah, I mean, I do think, of course, that I'm, when I'm writing this up, in some ways I am on my own, but we're, we're all so informed by so many different communities. And I suppose taking what you've saying then and sort of expanding it out, what that means then potentially is that every person will come with a different reading of the text, depending on where they sit, you know, their, the communities that they're a part of and, and so on, which really then leads us to a multiplicity of interpretations of the text rather than a single defining interpretation. Would you agree with that? Well, whether I agree with it or not, that seems to be what we have, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> I, I, tend to, I tend to think of it as the more voices that we hear, the greater our chance of clarity and picking up on hidden dimensions of the text that we have been incapable of fully appreciating. There are things that people located in various communities around the world pick up on that I would say, if if one can dare say this in this day, are legitimate insights that I've never thought of, right? And, And the interesting thing is they don't just come from PhDs. And sometimes they come from very attentive, careful readers and hearers of the text in the local church, where they'll ask the question, and I, I mean, I'm forever getting questions, and I'm like, you know, I don't think I've ever been asked that before. I don't think I've ever thought about that before. And so I don't expect everybody's going to have identical hearings of the text or readings of the text, but I think we have the opportunity have, to have fuller a fuller sounding of the text in that kind of diversity. And I'm not frightened by that. You know, as I came along, I soon eventually, I should say, discovered that there was a unity to the biblical witness, but there was also a great deal of diversity. Now, my more liberal university training tended to deny the unity, and my more conservative theological training tended to deny the diversity. But as I began to think more about that, the metaphor that came to my mind was uh, the imagery of the Black Gospel Choir, where in a Black Gospel Choir practice, you hear all these different parts and you're thinking, this is never going to work. It's just too much dissonance. But when you hear the choir actually sing, it's beautiful, it's rich, it's thick, it's textured, it's full. And so our tendencies to want to hammer everything down into an artificial uniformity, it seems to me, misses the dynamic of that full gospel choir. So I can allow every biblical voice to have its say on its own terms and not be tempted to force James into Paul or Paul into Luke or, or what have you, because that's the nature of Scripture, right, is the diversity as well as the unity. Now, when, I, when we think about the hearing end of it, I haven't thought quite as much about that in, in the way that you raised the question, but it seems to me that the imagery we might want to use as Pentecostals is kind of the ministry of the body, right? Where not every member has the same gift or calling, and uh, that there is a, 
really a beautiful unity in that diversity. Well, that, that's very helpful. And I guess what you're saying is to bring together these different streams is, is something that really enhances what we do rather than creates challenges, which can be difficult for some who like certainty, I suppose. Yeah, I, you know, I used to say, I may still, I can't remember now, I used to say when I would start my apocalypse class that if you have a hard time with dialectic, you might want to drop the course because that's what you're going to experience in this book. I think there has to be a humility in understanding that no one of us get it all. And so I don't think that, you know, you can put any number of diverse kind of hearings together and hear anything more than, you know, kind of noise. <laughs> but I, but most, most interpreters, let me just speak of my own tribe, most Pentecostals that I know do genuinely want to know what the scripture says. And so to be willing to be taught by one another and to teach, to bear testimony, I think becomes a major part in that, that journey of, of grappling with the text, and which ties into what I was saying earlier. I mean, and those insights can come from the least likely people. But right, if you can say that, is because it's very textual and it makes sense in the world of the text. So kind of to go back a little, to draw on a comment you made earlier, which I think kind of ties in with what you've been saying. One of the things you mentioned was art and um, looking at the art of the text, which I think is a, well, again, I don't want to speak for you, but I think you would probably agree with me in saying that this is another great interpretive tool in a sense, and it allows a, a very different voice to come to the text. This is something that most scholars don't really lean on, the idea of the artistic traditions within the book of Revelation or that cut out of the book of Revelation. What do you think art can contribute to how we read the text? Well, of course you're right. There is, there has been an enormous amount of art produced on the apocalypse, as you well know. And what I found was it's that kind of right brain, left brain business. Sometimes the artists pick up on dimensions of the texts, the text that defies kind of rational explanations. You know, a lamb with seven eyes, right? Jesus with a sword that comes from his mouth. Uh, you pick any of the, the images. And for some people, those images are off-putting because they can't explain them or they explain them too well. And I, I found in my engagement with the text, that I was afraid to mess too much with the images in terms of trying to decode them, lest the power of the image is violated. So you've got the lamb that looks as though it's been slain with, you know, the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God and the, and the horns and, you know, all of that. Well, you can try to decode that and to say, okay, so now this reference takes us to this doctrine, blah, blah, blah. But what does the image do to you? And so I think that art can put us in touch with another, if you will, reality. It's almost the, like the way in which you can sing about things in some ways that you can't visualize. You can sing things that are experienced differently than a discourse, right? 
And I think art taps into another dimension of what's going on. Now there can be, people can be right and wrong in that, right? I mean, they can help us or hurt us. Uh, and I'm not one to judge art in that regard. I tend to, I tend to try to identify what, what the art is saying as kind of reception of that text. But for me, it, it, it brings clarity and it keeps me, in some ways it keeps me in touch with the visionary dimension of the text when we're tempted to turn it into a research paper. I think it's also true in the way we approach the Old Testament, the intertexts. You know, when you think about that magnificent, stunning vision of the resurrected Jesus in chapter one, you can account intertextually for or source critically for where a lot of these things come from, but that misses the point of revelation because this is a stunning image in which all kinds of things converge, not unlike the way in which a number of things converge in the two witnesses, right? So I I suppose for me, the art helps in lots of ways. The artists are kind of exegetes in some way. I think people have started saying these days, they are clearly interpreters. And sometimes, you know, artists have the, the ability to see things and create things that move us in very uh, effective ways. And I think that's quite appropriate. And I suppose the, the issue there, not necessarily with art, but with coming to the text at all, is the temptation to treat it like a bunch of ciphers that need to be decoded. And I suppose to, to kind of draw on what you're saying, that art can help us to sidestep that. Although, of course, the temptation is always still there. Aside from art, then, um, which is important, there's one thing we haven't really talked about yet, which is the oral, both with an O and an AU, an oral um, approach to the text. Now, have you, have you done much work with, with that aspect of the text at all? Well, what I focus on in, in the commentaries are, are the hearers that get constructed by the text. And I, I think the hearing of the text and experiencing the text that way allows one to pick up on certain kinds of repetitions in the text, certain major breaks in the text, certain ways in which certain texts are connected with other texts. And so, yeah, I mean, I think hearing the text, I sometimes say here in the United States, we have this group called the Gideons that when I was coming along, passed out Bibles to all the school kids, right? And I sometimes remind people, we, not everybody had their Gideon's copy of the book of Revelation uh, in the first century. The, they are really, in a lot of ways, hearers. I mean, there are readers, but there are hearers. And so, yeah, that's how I envision uh, how these readers are experiencing the text. But the readers that are being, you know, constructed by the text itself. I don't come to the text myself with presuppositions about who they are, aside from the way in which the texts reveal who they are. So, so let's talk a little bit about that, because that's an interesting question then. So who, what does the text construct in terms of hearers then, do you think? Well, how long, how long we got? <laughs> um, you know, I mean, it's, it, it seems clear to me that the hearers are described as being in and around Asia Minor, but we, we don't know a whole lot about them. You know, I remember reading, who was it, Colin Hemer's volume on the seven churches. And uh, in the end, 
in his little conclusions on each one, basically what he concluded what was was what was in the text. After we'd gone, you know, been drugged through lots of archaeology and and various things. I mean, the text reveals certain things, and I often in in my commentary will say, maybe the readers think about this, 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 and this, or hearers think about these things, but they soon find out what Jesus thinks of the church, right? And so, you know, you have that kind of context. You have hearers that seem to know the Old Testament very well. You have hearers, some of whom seem to have had some conflict with the Jewish synagogue. You have some readers who who seem to have been persecuted to the point of death. And so, you know, you have a pneumatic audience. They seem to understand when John talks about being in the spirit, it's not defined. They seem to make all the moves with him. It seems to be a prophetic community, the hearers. Others seem to be diverse in terms of ethnicity. There seem to be a number of prophets in the community from uh, the way that the text ends. And there seems to be, it seems to be a community that is defined in some ways over against a hostile world. So the community is called to faithful pneumatic witness that longs for the conversion of the nations. And so for me, that's how I come to that. You know, I kept expecting to see Rome pop out everywhere, but it doesn't. And, you know, one of the, one of the places where it's said to really be evident is in chapter 17 with the seven hills, right? But by the time I got there, I had seen the number seven so many times that had various kinds of meanings at times that I thought, so is the apocalypse now going to give us a literalistic decoded message about Rome at this point? So I'm not, I'm not saying those things don't exist, but that's not what the text seems to, to me, that's not what the text seems to privilege. And it is interesting then to think that, as we've kind of been saying before, that when you sit with the text in a, as a holistic picture, rather than drawing out bits and pieces and jumping back and forward, you do seem to get something very different rather than, you know, privileging particular parts of the text to draw out particular ideas or coming with the preconceptions that we've talked about. So how, I mean, we've talked about, you know, all manner of different things today. And I think one of the great things about speaking with you has been drawing out how some Pentecostals have read the text and how we, we can engage with it. To kind of conclude then, what do you think is a helpful way for the average person and perhaps the average Pentecostal, if there is such a thing, <laughs> to come and to engage with the text of Revelation today? Well, it doesn't hurt to have a teacher, you know, that, that one can rely on as a, a reliable guide. But uh, I tend to think, again, of just starting through the text. You know, I remember, Ewan, when I was a young boy, probably junior high age, I was reading the book of Revelation in my, my bedroom, and I came across the seven spirits of God, right? And I'm like, what is this? So I go talk to my dad, who's is a pastor, uh, pastor emeritus now. My brother and I would always try to think up questions to ask him to stump him, but we, you know, if you get forgiveness on this side of the international date line, did you cross it? Are you still forgiven? Or, you know, those sorts of things. And, uh, so I said, what's this about the seven spirits of God? And he said, well, probably 
you know, is a, a way of referring to, you know, underscoring God's divinity. And I said, oh, but it says seven spirits. He says, well, maybe it's seven spirits then. I don't know if you're going to be, you know, literalistic about it. I do think that just reading the text on one's own immediately subverts some of the standard tropes that one hears about. Because whenever the people of God are on the stage, they have the promise of God's protection. And when there are these righteous judgments that go forward, the people of God don't seem to be the recipients at all. They may be persecuted later by the beast and the kind of triumvirate of evil, right? But that's not what's going on from God. And I think most, I think most people at the popular level, they're afraid of the book because it all gets jumbled up together. You know, and we have a saying in the South that the, the, the chickens are in with the hogs right? I mean, it's just, it's a mess, right? But as you make your way through it, you start to discover different things. For one thing, you discover that when the beast is being, uh, one thing you discover is the word antichrist is not in the book, which is a major disappointment to people. Another thing you discover is that when the beast is worshipped, it's not because he started a counterfeit church, but it's because he has all military might and all financial might. Well, is that familiar? Uh, and, and so as you make your way forward, you, uh, you know, the text itself kind of deconstructs things. And one of the things you're struck by, and, and, and Melissa Archer has shown this, I think, in her work on, on worship in the apocalypse. One of the things you're struck by is just how much worship there is in the apocalypse. And as an ordinary reader, you'll discover how much there is about the spirit. And of course, the lamb. And you get those, you know, then you get those odd phrases like the wrath of the lamb, right? What in the world? And it's not exactly what you expect, but you begin to get this revelation of Jesus, the lamb, in a different way, I think, that builds on the, the lamb in the fourth gospel. But you find out a lot more about this lamb. In fact, sometimes on Easter, I would preach on the Lamb of God, but my text would be from the Apocalypse, right? Because it, it, it's exploring another, another dimension. And I just would encourage people to kind of experience the text. And if you want to go to, to some helps, something like Craig's little commentary, Craig Kester on a Revelation and the End of All Things, is probably a good little guide to help them along the way. In fact, his introduction to his commentary is all reception history. It's how has this text been received by the church? And he gives this nice kind of survey where most every reader will find themselves in one category or another. And so I think I would start there. And I think I might start, too, with finding a brother, a trusted brother or sister to kind of share the journey with and try as best you can not to superimpose things on the text or bring things into the text to say, aha, this is what it means. You can trust the text and it will, it will make its own meaning in that sense. And the other thing I would just say, Ewan, is you have to, I would encourage people to be willing to be drawn into the world of the text. Now, now the scary thing about that is when you really do that, you start to understand why all these zany interpretations of the text exist, because you start to see how they might make certain connections. 
But that's not the only way to be drawn into the text. There is this discerning journeying through the text, it seems to me. And so, you know, it's almost like what you're saying is treating the text like, like a film, in, yeah. in a sense, that, you know, you take it in one hit, you, you allow it to construct its world around you, you're immersed in it, and it constructs its own logic. I think that's right. And I think the texts, I think that's the purpose the texts reveal on their own, right? That they stand together. You know, people look for people's intent and purpose and all that, but I think the texts reveal that on their own. Yeah. Well, that's a good note to conclude on, I think, that let the text speak for itself and sit with it. Any final things you want to add there, Chris? Well, I think it's just, a, I think it's a marvelous text. You know, you've got, I will sometimes use Revelation when I'm doing a, a funeral of a saint, and I'll talk about their past and kind of rehearse something of their testimony, their biography, their relationships. And then I'll sometimes talk about their present and settle in on Revelation chapter 5, where it, which seems to be the center of history, right? Where every creature in the universe is praising the Lamb and the one who sits on the throne. And if they're worshiping the Lamb and the seven eyes of the Spirit, apparently the Spirit is being worshiped as well. And then I'll talk about their future and make the point that even because even the future has a future, that heaven, as wonderfully as it's described in the apocalypse, gives way to a new heaven and new earth. And in New Jerusalem, there's no uh, mediation. The experience of God is now immediate. There's no temple. There's we see God, we are his sons, the text says. And interestingly, in the Johannine literature, there's only one son of God, one we us, that's Jesus. But in that text, at the end of the book, it says, and we shall be his sons. There's a real theotic theosis that goes on as we are drawn more and more into the divine presence as the text finishes. And there is this optimism for the conversion of the nations. You know, there are two lists of, of folk who are excluded, which says it's not a universalism, but there is also this real optimism that the kings of the earth bring the glories of the nations into New Jerusalem, and we've not ever been told where they came to Jesus. So it suggests to the hearers that their work of faithful witness is doing far more than they're able to gauge at the moment, and that there is hope for the conversion of the nations. Maybe that's a good, you know. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, I think that's a really positive and, and helpful note to end on. So um, thank you very much for your time, Chris. Um, really appreciate having you on the podcast. And for our listeners, you know, if, if you want to learn more about Chris or see some of the things that he's published, a full biography will be available on the website, as always. So. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be with you.